0: Our scripture reading this morning is Mark chapter 15, verse 34, just one verse as we continue this series on the last words of Jesus upon the cross, the seven sayings, his last words, Mark 15, verse 34. Hear now the word of the Lord. At three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. September 11th was, of course, a horrifying day. It's a day like December 7th that will live in infamy. And I know uh, if you recall that, There are indelible images that are probably coming to your mind right now, filtering into your brain of that day, some of the the horrors of that day. The planes striking into the towers, the towers collapsing, the ash and smoke cascading through the streets of Manhattan. All of those are horrific things. But for me, the most horrifying image of that day, the one I can't erase from my mind, are the, were those images of people jumping from the towers. Those are truly haunting images. It's the thought of the choice that had to be made in that moment. The choice of burning under searing heat or plunging to your death. Clearly for some, the latter was preferable to the former. Now you can think about that moment, right? You can think about that choice. You can conceive of it rationally in that time, right? How that choice gets made, what it must have been like. You can think about it, but you can't know, deep down know, what that was like. We have no clue what that was like. It was an impenetrable horror. You can't know it. You can't experience it unless you experienced it. It's unknown. And perhaps that's why it is so terrifying to me. It is unknown what that must have been like. And I think in some ways that's exactly how we have to approach these last words of Jesus here His so-called cry of dereliction, when Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those words are impenetrable. We can't tear them open and peer inside of them. We have no clue what that was like. We can't really enter into them and experience them. We can't know the horror of those last words of Jesus. The great Bishop J.C. Ryle put it this way, There is a deep mystery in these words which no mortal man can fathom. Indeed. We can't fathom them. We can't penetrate them. And even with our inability to penetrate them, there is also this added challenge that to try to do so, To try to enter in, to try to explain them, to try to put it in propositions, as I have to do at some level this morning, you run another danger. You run the danger of heresy, of bordering on unorthodoxy, because these are perplexing things. Even to try to speak about them, what was going on the two natures, Of Christ, his human and divine nature, in what we call the hypostatic union. What was going on in those moments when Jesus cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How do we make theological sense of that? Or even talk about it? What was going on in the Trinity? as we conceive it as Orthodox Christians in those moments, in those dark times when Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When you try to attempt to answer those questions, you are on perilous ground. So where does that leave us? If we can't really penetrate, if we can't really know these words, what's in them, what's behind them, And to talk about them, we run the risk of some type of heretical theology. What do we do about that? How do we approach these words this morning? How do we come at them? How do do we become edified by the Word of God this morning? I think the best way to do that, the most faithful way to do that, is to not approach them head on, but to come at them at, at an angle kind of an obtuse angle, come at them at an angle, not, not head-on, but from an angle. Because I think if we do that, we can gain some insights into the meaning of these words. We can catch a glimpse. We can't fathom them all. We're not going to plumb their deaths. We're not going to explain them away. But we can capture a glimpse if we look at an angle. And the way we can do that is through Scripture itself. God has given us ways to look at these words from an angle from his own word. We can use the analogy of faith. We can interpret Scripture with Scripture. And that's what I want to do this morning as we look at these last words of Jesus. I want to look at them from an angle of two Old Testament texts this morning. And to see into them these words through those two texts. So two texts, that will be the basic outline. And then I'll make some conclusions uh, together here this morning. So the first text that allows us to look into this text, these last words of Jesus, and an angle is Genesis chapter 22. And that, of course, is the account of the sacrifice or the almost sacrifice of Isaac by Abraham. This is how that text starts, Genesis 22, verses 1 and 2. After these things, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. And you know the account, you know the story, how Abraham followed in obedience, how he took Isaac to that mount, Mount Moriah, to sacrifice him. Perhaps you've forgotten that in that account, we're told that Abraham, the father, made his son carry some of the elements of his own sacrifice, On his shoulders, Genesis 22, verse 6. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. The father put upon the son part of the instruments, elements of his own sacrifice. And the text tells us also that it was Abraham, the father himself, who carried the actual instrument that was to. Bring the death upon his son, Genesis 22, 6. And he himself, that is Abraham, carried the fire and the knife. And of course, we know how that text plays out, how Abraham raises the knife, how all that drama unfolds and the tension of that moment. And you know how it ends, how God stayed the hand of Abraham. How he did not have to go through it with it. And you know about the ram and the thicket, that there was a substitute sacrifice provided in that moment. And throughout it all, through the whole account, Abraham never left the presence of his son Isaac, never abandoned him. Do you ever think about that story and wonder why it's in Scripture? Why God did that? Why did God ask this? Of Abraham, it seems at one level perhaps cruel or arbitrary or capricious at least, but we know that God is neither of those things uh, or any of those things. He is not cruel. He's not arbitrary. He is not capricious. He does what is good and what is just. He never acts in those manners. So why did He do it? I don't claim to be able to enter the fullness of the mind of God, but Scripture does give us some insight as to why. One of them was to show forth and to prove and to test the obedience of Abraham, what he was willing to sacrifice, his commitment to God. But the other, the one relevant for our sermon this morning, was to show Abraham and to show us, his descendants, his spiritual descendants, to show us the cost of redemption. This story in Genesis 22, of course, foreshadows the greatest story ever told. It foreshadows the words I read this morning from Scripture. It foreshadows the crucifixion of Jesus. And on another mount, the Father brought His Son, laid upon Him the cross, and, and took from Him. And gave, who gave His life there, Jesus, right? God's only, one and only beloved Son. And the connections between the two are striking. Uh, many scholars argue that Mount Moriah and Mount Calvary are the same place, that this is the same exact location. These two events occurred at the very same place. There are so many similarities. The father and the only son, the act of sacrifice. But it's in the contrast between the two that we really see into our text this morning. The fullness of what was going on in these last words because there are striking differences and they're profound. Because unlike with Abraham and Isaac at Mount Moriah on Calvary, no one stayed the Father's hand. And unlike the account with Abraham and Isaac on Mount Calvary, there was no ram in the thicket. No substitute was found. The cup did not pass. And unlike in the account of Abraham and Isaac, the father, in a mystery beyond our comprehension, abandoned. This is it. Abandoned his son in that moment. In the darkness of those hours. Donald MacLeod, in his book, Christ Crucified, understand the atonement. He wrote this. He said, like Abraham and Isaac going up to Mount Moriah, father and son had gone up to Calvary together and throughout his life. Jesus had been assured that he was not alone, but that the father was with him. But now at the ninth hour, Abba was not there. Abba was not there. And that's really it, beloved. That's the insight, that's the angle, that's the true horror of these words. It's the absence of Abba. As McLeod points out, and you've already heard and will hear, Jesus on the cross cries out to His Father, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Soon we'll hear Jesus cry out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But here in these moments, there is no Father in these words. There's a change in the vocabulary here. Jesus does not say, My Father, my Father, why have you forsaken me? He says, My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Why? Because Abba is not there. Cloud writes this, clearly the forsakenness is only a moment in a long journey from the third to the ninth hour for much of the time Jesus remained in communion with his father but now, now comes a moment of well nigh unsustainable, unsustainable awfulness, Abba is out of reach, not listening, the intimacy is broken, an intimacy that had never been broken before, think of that, That's what's in these words of Jesus. How can any of us penetrate that idea? We can only see it at an angle, and Genesis 22 helps us to do so, to see the impenetrable nature of those words. The other text that lets us see into these words at an angle, of course, is the text from which they are from, Psalm 22. It's a direct quotation verbatim. Psalm 22, verse 1 begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You find that intriguing that Jesus here uses those very words verbatim from that psalm, and he doesn't use it with that little quotation, right? In order for the Scripture to be fulfilled, right? So often we see that, and we will see that. Jesus was purposely fulfilling things, but here that's not what it is. It's just Jesus using those words. This is the one who is the word of God. This is the one who spoke revelation, right? It came out of his mouth when he spoke. He gave us the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, so many parables. And yet, here in this moment, in the grandest moment of all redemptive history, in the most significant moment in human history, in our time, in space, he goes not to his own words, but to the words of this song My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? That's where he finds his Good Friday voice. And so many parts of that psalm, of course, Provide allusions to the crucifixion. And many have pointed that out. If you read that entire psalm, you will find references to the crucifixion itself, how you die in that process, how your bones and your body collapses and you kind of suffocate under it. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. And in that psalm, you find his. Thirst described, I my strength is dried up like a potsherd, my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth, you lay me in the dust of death, you find in that psalm the shame, the public nakedness of crucifixion, the shame of it all, I can count all my bones, people stare and gloat over me. You can find the casting of lots for his garments. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Jesus goes to the psalm which alludes so powerfully to the crucifixion. So powerfully that this psalm has been called in the tradition of the church the fifth gospel. And it's right to call it that because it is only here that we enter into the first person experience of Jesus on the cross. The Gospels give us that CNN kind of camera angle, third person looking into it, right? But this, Psalm 22, is the words of Christ. This is where Christ found His experience, His suffering, what was going on in those moments. But even here... Even in Psalm 22, we fall short, right? It gives us insight, insight from an angle to see into these words, but we cannot fully penetrate them. We can only see them at an angle. So that's a way to look at these words through these Old Testament texts. But what are we to make of this? How are we to understand these words? And what significance do they have for us this morning, for you and for me today? Let me close with that type of reflection. How should we understand these words? And what are their lasting significance to us? It is interesting that these words of Jesus have been interpreted in a variety of ways. In his book, John Stott's book, uh, The Cross of Christ, he goes through the four major views of how people have interpreted this cry of dereliction, these words of Jesus upon the cross. And one view is that Jesus' words were uh, evidence of his unbelief, his dismay, his anger at God. He couldn't believe that this was happening, that God didn't save him in this moment. And so this cry of dereliction are really words of unbelief and dismay. Of course, think that that is not correct, not in accord with Scripture, or what we know about Christ. Another interpretation that Stott notes is that this is a cry of loneliness, that what's being expressed here is Jesus feeling alone. He wasn't really forsaken by the Father, he just felt that way in that moment. And these words express his human feeling of loneliness. I don't think that's right either. A third view takes a very different view of this entirely, turns it on its head and suggests that these words, this cry of dereliction, is not a cry of dereliction. It is rather a cry of victory, that these are words of victory. That Jesus is proclaiming his victory on the cross, Christus victor, right? This is this moment of victory, and they use Psalm 22 and how it ends, and it does end in victory, but I don't believe that that is what Jesus is doing here declaring victory in this moment. And then Stott comes to the final view, which is his view, which is my view, and it's simply this. You have to take these words at face value. You take them at face value, which means that in that moment, The Divine Son was forsaken by the Divine Father in a way that we cannot fully understand, but that the horror of this moment was God-forsakenness. In the hours of that darkness, Jesus was truly alone in a way He had never experienced before. He was God-forsaken. J.C. Ryle expresses it this way, These words, they were meant to express the real pressure on his soul, the enormous burden of a world's sins. They were meant to show how truly and literally he was our substitute. He was made sin. He was made a curse for us. He endured God's righteous anger against a world's sin in his own person. He who knew no sin became sin for us and was forsaken. John Stott expresses it this way, So then an actual and dreadful separation took place between the Father and the Son, and it was voluntarily accepted by both Father and Son. It was due to our sins and their just reward. And Jesus expressed this horror of great darkness, this God-forsakenness, by quoting the only verse of Scripture which accurately described it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken because of our sins. Because the Father had put upon his shoulders our sin. William Hendrickson puts it succinctly. He said, Hell came to Calvary that day. Hell came to Calvary that day. Hell is God forsakenness. That's how we should understand these words, these last words of Jesus. Now what about their lasting significance for you and me? These are words of horror. Impenetrable, unknowable horror. Yet they're glorious words of good news. They're words that we should cherish and give thanks for because they remind us of a truth. It's the very fact that these words are impenetrable, are unknowable, in which we find our comfort and our hope and our joy this morning because of what Jesus has done. Anyone who puts their trust in Him will never experience what He experienced. They'll never know the horror of God forsaken Do you see that glory? Do you see that comfort? Do you see how the gospel twists for you in hope and in glory and in joy? That which was a curse for him to experience has become a blessing for you to embrace. It's the very inaccessibility and unknowable nature of those words. In that we find our hope. As Murray Harris put it, Christ was forsaken by God so that believers may never be forsaken by Him. As Hebrews puts it, 13.5, for He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. As the poet Elizabeth Barrett Browning put it in her poem, Cowper's Grave. Yea, once Emmanuel's orphan cry, his universe has shaken. It went up single, echoless, my God, I am forsaken. It went up from the holy's lips amid his lost creation, that of the lost no son should use those words of desolation. That is the hope. That is the joy. That is the glory of these words for you. Praise be to God. That these last words of Jesus remain unknowable, inaccessible, and impenetrable to us. That's the good news, beloved, of his last words. Let's pray.